Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good evening to everybody at home. If you've got a Bible to hand, um, do turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, and we'll be reading from verse 1. But before we do, let me uh, take a moment to pray. Our God, our Father, we, we thank you and uh, we, we praise you that you're, you're with us now by your Spirit. And we, we pray as we look at your word together that you would teach us uh, new things. You'll remind us of forgotten things. And Father, that you will change us to be a new thing. That you'll help us to live out a life that's according to your will. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not... Sorry, I'll start that again. I missed out an important word. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose... A man comes into your meetings wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, when um, James wrote these these chapters, well, there weren't chapter headings at all. Um, he, he was writing a cohesive and very practical letter. Uh, it's just meant to be read as one continuation. So in chapter one, um, we saw, particularly towards the, the end, he doesn't want believers to be deceived about their faith. Faith is at verse 16, he says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. And he uses similar words in verse 22. Do not merely merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And again, verse 26, 
Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. Do you see that? Uh, that kind of repeating of the not being deceived. James is very much concerned that we don't deceive ourselves. And it's so easy, isn't it, to be deceived. We hate to be deceived and by others, but we can be deceived by ourselves. And faith, you see, has to be lived out. And that's, James really wants us to see that. He wants faith to be lived out. Listening leads to believing, which leads to doing. That's what he really wants us to not be deceived about that. Now, he's going to expand on this, and he's already teed it up at the end of chapter 1 in verse 27. He says, Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, examples of uh, social responsibility, and, he says, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's individual purity, isn't it? So don't be deceived about faith. Um, Belief will work out into these areas of life. And now he comes with a specific example of where we can be deceived. And the danger here is of treating um, others according to their outward appearances, the danger of favoritism. So first, the first point, verses 1 to 4, is simply don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism. And it's actually very uncomfortable as we listen to this. It has an immediate challenge to us, I think. Don't show favoritism. We need to let that sink in. It's not difficult for us to grasp, but before we sort of delve into unpacking what this favoritism is about, it is worth, I think, just spending a moment saying what it isn't, what it's not saying. Because I think we can get a bit confused with these statements because um, they can be pushed beyond their, their intended meaning. You see, J- James is not trying to reduce everyone and everything to a kind of common level. He doesn't do that. We, you see, often we come to these texts with our own political or maybe even ideological debates, and we mingle them in with various isms like, I don't know, socialism, communism, capitalism, that everyone is somehow the same, everyone is on a common level, and nobody gets to sit here, nobody gets to sit there, nobody gets to get honoured, and nobody gets to get respected, and so on, okay? But the Bible doesn't, doesn't do that. And the Bible calls us to actually show proper respect, where respect is due. And uh, James is not condemning preferential treatment out of hand in every and any situation. I'll just give you one example. We haven't got time to go through lots of them, but one example. If you were to flip over to 1 Peter, which is the very next book, 1 Peter 2, verse 17 says this, Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor or honor the king. I don't think any of us, if the, if, you know, would, if the Queen walked in into St. John's, I don't think anyone would be surprised if we gave them preferential, gave her preferential treatment, a special seat, 
I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Or if an elderly member came in, we should provide, and, and they, they need some, a comfortable seat where they can hear and see properly. We might even ask somebody younger to, to move aside. It's an expression of honor. It's an expression of respect. But having said that, and there's one example, and there's others we could use, but what we need to make absolutely clear, crystal clear, which is what the, James is saying here, is that wealth in and of itself does not deserve special honor. Let's not miss the punch of this, and I'm going to keep repeating this. Don't show favoritism from outward appearances, whatever it might be from an outward appearance, schooling, wherever you grew up or wherever you live, whether you live in a, in a tower block or in a detached house or whether you're from whatever race you're from or whether you have a particular accent or whether you, what class you have, whatever it might be. And of course, it would be quite easy for us to, to kind of move on and look at the example that he gives. But I just want us to dwell on verse 1. If you look at verse 1 again with me, my brothers and sisters, he says, believers. Don't rush over that. James is writing to believers. This is really important. He's writing to believers, people who have made a conscious personal commitment to trusting in the Lord Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. We are either believers or unbelievers. There's no kind of halfway house in this. And I, and I do want to ask you here, and I want to ask people who are listening at home, are you a believer? Are you a believer? Have you made that decision to follow the Lord Jesus? If you have any doubt about that, come to him today. Commit your life to him. We'd love to help you um, do that. Speak to me um, afterwards. But secondly, notice what James says about Jesus. He says, believers... In our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. I nearly missed that when I was reading the text. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus. Now, James is really skillful. He adds the word glorious, and he's done that quite deliberately. As he, what's he doing? He's beginning a, a discussion about wealth and favoritism. And he says, glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it like this. Poor man, rich man. Jesus is poor. Jesus is rich. Jesus rode on a donkey. Jesus is in heaven. Jesus died on a cross. Jesus sits on a throne. Jesus was born on a stable. Jesus dwells in majesty. Jesus became poor. Jesus is Glorious. He's glorious. And, and what James is doing, he's, he's controlling the discussion around favoritism by stating believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul sums up this 
point really well in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You see, Jesus is no respecter of of wealth. He, he, in a sense, he didn't think upon his own wealth in, in that way. Jesus calls a rich man down from a tree, Zacchaeus, but Jesus also calls a, man, a woman who's wiping um, his feet with her hair. He sets aside his glory, his wealth, to come to us, to serve us, and to save us in what? In the poverty of our sin. You see what James is saying here, really? He's kind of saying that imagine if Jesus had operated, imagine if Jesus did operate on the basis of wealth. What kind of seat do you think you and I would have in that? You see, not to lose sight of the gospel in the discussion of favoritism because, because James is not losing sight of that. So when a church family gets this wrong and starts to give preferential treatment, opportunities, benefits on the basis of a label on a shirt, on the bag you carry, on the postcode you live, whatever it might be, or the color of your skin, or the number plate you drive, that church is in serious need of James 2.1, don't show favoritism. It's very, very challenging. Why? Because Jesus gave up his glory to make you and me glorious through his death. This is the window into the illustration that James gives around seating in meetings um, in verses 2 to 4 over a wealthy man and a poor man. I think we can all assume that the people they're talking about are new to the meeting, um, new people that were, that were, were coming in. And, um, it can be very daunting, can't it? Coming into a, into a meeting, especially even to a church meeting. Um, that people will often be thinking, oh, you know, how will they treat me? Um, where will I sit? And, um, am I wearing the right clothes? Those sorts of things. And I know that favoritism happens. It does all the time. Remember, James says, why is he saying this? He's saying this because earlier he said, do not be deceived, he said. We instinctively are, are drawn to people like us. It happens so naturally. We're, we're generally, aren't we, white, middle class and wealthy, able to do small chat really well, but what about somebody who's not like us, who is not from our background, who doesn't look like us? Will we move out? Will we move out towards them as Jesus moves out towards us? We all listen to that. I'm sure that challenge, we all listen to that and we kind of nod our heads and go, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, that's right, agree with that. I'm sure that I, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, that is me. That's the thing. That's what he, James wants us to, he wants us not to be deceived. Don't listen to it and merely deceive yourselves as if it is not you. 
I, I think the best place is to start from the basis, is to just go out and think, it is me. Just have that on your mind. It is me. I show favoritism. That we all do that in different ways and in different forms. And I think if we start from that point, we won't be someone who looks at himself in a mirror and immediately forgets what he looks like. Remember what was said in chapter 1? Secondly, number 2, verses 5 to 7, God chooses the poor generally. God chooses the poor generally. Now, James follows his illustration here with application with three rhetorical um, questions. Uh, A rhetorical question uh, is a question that is asked by somebody to, in order to create a dramatic effect, isn't it? Or to make a point and make a, an illustrator point rather than to kind of illustrate and, uh, rather than to get an answer. I remember, um, was, Hannah was just talking about getting a response. Somebody, uh, heckled at you earlier. And I remember when I was preaching in, up in Cheesel in Manchester, I was using lots of rhetorical questions in a sermon, and this lady had just walked in, I didn't even notice her, and came near the front, and she started to answer every single rhetorical question that I, <laughs> I had. So, isn't God great? And she'd shout, yes! <laughs> and all these sort of things. And uh, I think she probably had one or two um, many sherbet dips or something. <laughs> but that's a rhetorical question. And so he has three here. Let's follow these three uh, questions through. Number one, verse five. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? Question, rhetorical question number one. Answer is yes, generally, and no. That's how rhetorical questions often asked, aren't they? Think about it generally true, but not in every case. The Bible tells us about all sorts of people that God chose who were extremely rich. Uh, you can think of them, can't you? Abraham, rich. Job, rich. Zacchaeus, very rich. <laughs> Levi, rich. Sergio Paulus, rich. Joseph of Arimathea, who gave the tomb to be used, rich. But you see, James, is, what is he doing? He's pressing home a point, isn't he? He's pressing home a point by making a compelling impact. Because as Paul, Paul outlines in Corinthians 1, he says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Generally true, but not always. Number two, verse six, second rhetorical questions. You have dishonored the poor, he says. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Answer, yes and no. Generally true, but not in every case. It's generally true that those who have access to wealth and those uh, will be able to afford um, help, won't they, for themselves, to to get a a lawyer, 
True then and true now, isn't it? The poor need defending. The poor need legal aid. Because they won't be able to afford it. And they will be open to exploitation. Wealth and position can so easily be combined and the temptation can creep in even to the church. Even into the church. And favoritism can take roots. So we really need to start from that point, as I said before, about saying, yes, it could be true of me. It is true of me. And I, I, I sometimes think it's, well... One of the things I want to say to you as the church leader is I make it my absolutely prerogative and clear, I want to make it clear, that I have absolutely no idea who gives what in this church. And I do that because I think that's really important for this very reason. I have no idea who gives what in this church. And frankly, I don't want to know. And please don't even try and tell me. Because I'll go, la, 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 for this very reason. That's between you and God. Okay? It's absolutely true. I, I pray that we, we do give generously in response to the gospel and to what God has done. But the temptation would be there, you see, for me and people in, in leadership to treat people differently because they maybe give something more than others. I don't know. That's the third, second rhetorical question. The third one is in verse 7. Are they not the ones, the rich, talking here, who are blaspheming the noble name of him who you belong? Answer, yes, generally. And of course, no, not always. Yes, generally, but not in every case. When we see Jesus, um, when we believe in Jesus, when we become Christians... What happens? What, what, what do we become? We become Christians. We become in Christ. What does that mean? We're taking the very name of Christ, isn't it? Uh, and that name is then applied to us. We're in Christ, in Christians. And you see what James is, is saying, because, because we're now adopted into his family. So what's saying, what he's saying is when you exploit a poor person through your wealth or your status or, or, or whatever, you're not just treating them badly, you're not just being unkind to them, you're actually blaspheming them because they are in Christ. And it's like, therefore, that you're doing it to Christ. Insulting the poor is what? It's insulting Christ, isn't it? That's effectively what he's saying. So favoritism isn't just a little bit of misguided thinking. No, it's actually blaspheming the very name of Christ very name of Jesus. It's that serious. It's a really big deal. So we need to search our hearts. I think this has really searched my heart this week. And I'm sure it'll do the same to you. As Jesus reminds us that God chooses the poor generally, not in every case. Number three, verses eight to 13, and very, very briefly, um, the call to love. It's there, isn't it? The call to love. Verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. The bottom line is that 
Favoritism is, is actually a very, very serious sin. And in the same breath, he's mentioning things like adultery and he's mentioning murder at the same time. And sometimes I think, you know, we're tempted, aren't we, to sort of um, think about the Ten Commandments, the Big Ten. As long as I've not done these, then I'm okay. But James says here, and he says it clearly in verse 10, that if we stumble over one part of the law, then we're, we're, we break the whole law. We're lawbreakers. You know, the, the, the law is not just, it's not a, a pile of stones. Imagine a pile of stones. It's not, it's not as if you, if you take one away, you still have a pile of stones. It's more like the law is more like a sheet of glass. And if you didn't the glass with, you know what happens with a whole piece of glass. It, it shatters the whole thing, doesn't it? So fundamentally showing favoritism is, comes down to not to love your neighbor. Not to love your neighbor, and that makes you a lawbreaker. What are we to do about this? Well, you know, this is a hard, this is challenging stuff. This is, really is rubber hits the road, isn't it? And James knows this. What are we going to do? And what do we do whenever we sin or fall, as we fall short? We first, we confess. We confess our sin. We ask for God's forgiveness, knowing that he is kind and he will forgive us our sins. That we turn back to him, we repent, and we act entirely differently. It's really important, isn't it? Because that's what James is, is saying. It's faith that works. That's the title of our series. It's faith that works. We act, we start doing entirely differently. We should go we should start to then move out, seeking to behave uh, well in all our fellowship. As a fellowship, we should look out for all, the disadvantaged, the poor, those that we've sinned against, those who are not like us from the same social background or the same race as us or whatever it might be. In the knowledge, in the knowledge that that God is merciful, and he's shown us mercy, he's shown you mercy, and he can restore us, he can bring us together as one. Shall we pray? Oh God, our Father, this is very challenging, and we confess that we do show favoritism all the time, often in times and places that we don't see, we pray, Father, that we would not be deceived. We pray that you would show us where we show favoritism. We pray, Father, that we'll seek your forgiveness, we turn away from it, and that we'd act differently. Father, please, we, we pray, help us to trust in your mercy and in your love, knowing that in Jesus we have one who has forgiven us, the one who has died for us, the one who can help us live out the life that you've called us to. For we ask in his name. Amen.